Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Mel Cusin, and I work with this program. I welcome you all here. Sometimes it seems the Middle East occupies the attention of the State Department to the exclusion of the rest of the world. Small wonder, from our view, the daily happenings in the Middle East pose a serious threat to the world peace and to our own security in many ways. And that's the view of every, virtually every Western country. But how does the other side see it, the Arab side? How does what they see of the world affect their sense of security, their view of the future? Our speaker today has an amazing list of qualifications to answer these questions. He is Dr. Shibley Telhami of the University of Maryland. Anwar Sadat, Professor of Peace and Development, and a Senior Fellow at the Sabin Center at the Brookings Institute. Previously, he taught at Cornell, Ohio State, Southern Cal, Princeton, Columbia, Swarthmore College, and the University of California at Berkeley, where he received his doctorate in political science. He has served as advisor to the U.S. Mission to the U.N., to the U.S. Department of State, and to the Iraq Study Group. He has contributed to the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, and regularly appears on national and international radio and television. He has served on the U.S. Advisory Group on Public Diplomacy for the Arab and Muslim World, which which was appointed by the State Department at the request of Congress, and he co-drafted the report of the findings named Changing Minds, Winning Peace. His best-selling book, The Stakes, America, and the Middle East, was selected by Foreign Affairs as one of the top five books in the Middle East in 2003. He has been a principal investigator in the annual Arab Public Opinion Survey conducted since 2002 in six Arab countries, and that, my friends, is only the tip of the iceberg. He, he lives in he lives near Baltimore with his wife. His daughter is uh, studying abroad. She's a, a sophomore in college, and his son and this is just graduating high school. And this will make a number of us very happy here today. He has applied to the University of Texas at Austin for entrance. <laughs> so, with, with great pleasure, let's, let's give a good Texas welcome to Dr. Shibley Talami. Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate you hosting me today. And, uh, yes, I do hope uh, my son makes it to Texas. I mean, uh, I know how fine a university it is. Um, Before I start my talk about uh, uh, the world through Arab eyes, I just want to say a few things. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of you might have a lot of questions, and I'm going to try to leave enough time for a real conversation. Um, While I'm going to focus specifically on this topic of the new book, The World Through Our Eyes, 
Um, I just want to say that I'm following uh, all the major issues that are confronting the U.S. in the Middle East right now very closely and writing about them, separate from this book, uh, such as American mediation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I'm following closely. Actually published a book just last year, a co-authored book uh, on American uh, on American diplomacy toward that issue. <coughs> I'm certainly following the issue of Iran and and also writing about that. Uh, uh, watching what's happening in Egypt, I was there uh, in December and following that very closely. So. Um, any questions that you have beyond the specific topic of the talk, of course, you're welcome to ask it. So you're not limited to my formal presentation. <laughs> but I'm first going to tell you more about this project um, that at the core um, is about what the people in the Arab world really want. I know, uh, you know, there has been a, uh, uh, if, if I would say, a dismissal of public opinion in the Arab world, in large part because the region has been mostly uh, controlled by authoritarian rulers, whether they're kings or presidents for life. And so it was hard for people to uh, take seriously the thought that we needed to know what the people really wanted or that they mattered at all. I'll give you a couple of examples related to that. One example uh, was dating back uh, to a very important period uh, when the United States under Jimmy Carter uh, was mediating peace between Israel and Egypt. And Jimmy Carter, many of you will remember, uh, brought uh, then President of Egypt uh, Anwar Sadat and the Prime Minister of Israel Menachem Begin to Camp David, Maryland uh, for a very intense period of negotiations. And uh, I actually happened that that's really one of the periods that uh, made me turn away from mathematics and philosophy into political science. I became interested in large part through that period and I became a, a turn into political science and I ended up writing my first book on this issue. And when I was doing my research for the book, one of the things that was interesting was a conversation that took place between uh, Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt, on the first day at Camp David. Uh, Carter brought them together, hoping that they, he can, they can have a meeting of the mind. He will force them to make compromises. And so, of course, you know, initially, as happens, you all know negotiations, whether it's business or political negotiations. You start off with the opening position. Your opening position is always extreme because you're going to go from there uh, to, to compromise. So you, you, you basically make your stand. So each side made his stand. But Menachem Begin went a little bit more. When, Anwar, when Menachem Begin made his stand about what, was he, what he wanted Sadat to do, Sadat said, look, I can't do this. The Egyptian people wouldn't accept it. And so Menachem Begin shot back and said, what do you mean by Egyptian people? You control them. You control the media. You tell them what they want. Uh, they believe you. You can make them do it. And do it. In any, any case, you can disregard them. And Sadat was so angry by that answer that, by the way, they had to be separated for the rest of the negotiations. Actually, Jimmy Carter, poor guy, had to had to do it on his own anyway. He had to talk to them separately. Their subordinates met with each other, but they had to be separated until the very end. Now, why was that so angry? Because of this dismissal that they have a public opinion behind it. In fact, that dismissal uh, was also found, by the way, in the CIA assessment. Just a, a few weeks ago, uh, the CIA released um, 
declassified new documents that had, had been classified until recently uh, from that period about sort of what the U.S. thought about the Arab world and Israel uh, during that period when they were having negotiations. And one document that I pulled out, in fact, I did a little program about it on, on uh, uh, National Public Radio, uh, that um, was really interesting because you had, you know, CIA documents are pretty interesting. In general, they have a lot of good, thoughtful people who know the, the field, and they give a read, uh, obviously. And in this particular case, they were assigned to um, uh, report on whether Anwar Sadat had public support or, you know, is he doing it alone? Can he really survive if he made those compromises? And so the document came back, and it was kind of an interesting analysis. It said something like this. It said, well, does he have the military? Yes, he does. Does he have institutional support? Yes, he does. What about the public? At the time, they estimated that Egypt had 35 million people. Now, by the way, it's over 80 million people. Um, and uh, so they said, um, well, you know, uh, you've got uh, the, the majority of the people in Upper Egypt, in the Delta, in, in the slums of the city, uh, that's a total of 32 million of the 35 million. 32 million, 35 million. Oh, they don't count. Uh, they don't matter. I mean, they, they, they're not part of the decision-making. So essentially, don't pay attention to, to what, what, they, what they say. And that was kind of the attitude that we had. Well, think about this, what happened to Anwar Sadat. Anwar Sadat was assassinated. Now, it wasn't only about this issue. It was a complicated issue. But nonetheless, he was assassinated. And he didn't even make the compromises that he was asked to make. So this was a lot fewer compromises than he was, at, was being asked to make. He was assassinated. More importantly, this period started the Islamist militancy that gave rise to Ayman Zawahiri, who is now the head of Al-Qaeda, out of Egypt. Okay? So we can say, all right, public opinion doesn't really matter. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter in influencing a particular decision directly uh, uh, at that time. And this is at that time when we didn't have the information revolution. And I'll give you another example that you can relate to. Take King Hussein, the late King Hussein of Jordan, the father of the current King Abdullah. He was a, arguably the closest American ally personally. Um, while you know Israel and Egypt were always important to the U.S. Uh, certainly since that period, but as a person, in terms of somebody who was close, in part because he was so dependent on the U.S., the others had cloud of their own. Jordan is a small country. He's always been close to the U.S. And for that matter, behind the scenes, close to the Israelis even before he made peace with them. So this king uh, faces a crisis in 1991. What happened in 1991? Well, 19, beginning with 1990, August 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And we faced a major decision. The United States did. And uh, and George Bush decided that this shall not stand. He was going to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And for that, he built an extraordinary coalition. By the way, that was the largest international coalition ever built to deal with an international crisis at that time, including the tacit support from the Soviet Union. It was an extraordinary moment as an international coalition to dislodge Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. 
And there, the U.S. goes to the King of Jordan, who is an ally who is dependent on the U.S., and also dependent on funding from the Gulf states, like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait itself, the UAE, countries who are central to that fight against Saddam Hussein, and he said no. He said no. Now, why did he say no? Well, he said no for a very simple reason. He felt he can't go against his public on an issue that was so central to them that he stood to lose his crown, possibly, if he was seen by his public to support that effort. And there's no way you can understand his own decision, given his history and who he was, without understanding that he, the king, the king and the king, let's, let's be honest, is anything but a Democrat. But a king even then had to listen to his public opinion. He had to listen to his public And he survived. He survived and thrived and became an American ally and still reconciled himself with the Gulf states. But what I'm saying to you is that even at that period, when we were collectively as analysts or students or policymakers looking at the region, say, forget about public opinion, we were wrong. Because you couldn't move without understanding public opinion. It's central even then. But then something happened in the 1990s that made it even more central. And that is the information revolution. That started mostly with the expansion of the satellites in the 1990s. That meant that no government can control the information alone to its own people. And let me give you just an example of that. Uh, when I started doing my public opinion polling in the late 1990s, um, in every place, if I were to ask somebody, what is your main source of information? What is your main source of news? They will say their own national television station or some television station with their own, their own boundaries. By the time we had the Arab uprisings in 2010, in every country where I polled, when you ask people, what is your main source of news, they identified a source of news outside their own countries. And that should make you think about the government's inability to control the story, to tell them what they want them to believe and have them accept it. So that has been really the principal trans transformative event, that information revolution, that ultimately... Uh, led also to the expansion of the Internet, particularly in the past five years, that have taken away that uh, ability of governments to control the narrative. So when that was happening, I started asking myself, we're about a, to witness a huge information revolution in this uh, expanded satellite media and also uh, the rise of the Internet. Uh, and therefore, public opinion is going to matter even more in the Arab world. We have to come to understand it. We have to come to groups with it. And we have to know how this media is influencing people in the long term. So we need to have studies every single year to figure out how this is influencing not only their opinion, but even more importantly, how they define themselves, who they are, uh, how this media influences uh, their view of themselves, because that, in the end, is the core issue 
that determines in some ways opinion. So that's why I undertook a, 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 a project for over 10 years uh, where I, I did public opinion polling uh, in six countries. I took countries that are pretty representative. Uh, uh, Morocco in, in, in North Africa, uh, Egypt, you had to have Egypt, obviously alone is a quarter of the Arab world. Saudi Arabia, the richest. Uh, the United Arab Emirates, another Gulf state, Jordan, uh, and Lebanon. And so I, I had a sample of countries uh, that presented some variety, and I'm going to talk about that variety, because many of you know that when we say Arab, yes, Arabs have many things in common, especially language, but there's so much variation, so much variation from Morocco to Yemen to elsewhere, and so we need to understand that variation as well as the commonality, and I'll talk about that briefly. So the book ultimately is a product of this research of over 10 years, trying to document uh, what Arabs consume in the media market and that how that influences their identity and their opinion on major issues of the day. So what you find in the book is a an analysis starting with identity, how Arab identity is changing and how it varies from country to country, and how that identity influence influences opinion on major issues. So we have chapters on issues like um, the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, attitudes toward the United States, attitudes toward Iran, uh, attitudes toward social issues like um, political Islam and, and women, um, uh, attitudes toward the rest of the world, other countries like China and France. Um, and there's also a lot on how Americans have changed their views of the Middle East, because I also do American public opinion polling on the Middle East, so we have traced how the American public sees the Middle East over time. And then on top of that, because we deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict, we compared Arab public opinion with Israeli public opinion, so we also did some public opinion in Israel. So it's a very um, comprehensive look. I'm not going to cover all of that. I'm just going to end by making three quick points uh, to give you a little bit of a flavor and um, without touching on all the major issues. The first point I want to make is that there has been a transformation of identity in the Arab world in the past decade. Now, and that is central, and it's, it's very important to understand what's behind it and what the consequences are for it. Um, and when I say that, um, you know, as a, as a student of politics, I'm more of a student of politics than I'm a student of public opinion. I want to understand public opinion because I want to understand politics. Uh, but as somebody who does polling, I'm less interested in knowing what people say at any given time. We all know, I mean, we, we see how many polls we have. People change their mind, I mean, you know, from day to day. And so it's interesting as a snapshot, or it's interesting if you're running for office, uh, but, you know, they could say they like somebody today and they don't like them tomorrow. Uh, and so what is interesting about that analytically? Well, I say that the reason we do public opinion, in part, at least as an analyst for me, is not so much to understand what the public thinks about an issue, but what prism do they use in the back of their mind, what framework do they use in the back of their mind 
when they give an answer. Why do they give that answer? Why do they give one answer one day or the next day? So I do, that, I think, is the more interesting question. What drives them? What are their aspirations? What is it that they make reference to in their own mind when you put a question like, whom do you like in the world among world leaders? They have, they have to have a frame of reference. That's what I try to identify. And I argue you can't understand that unless you understand how Arabs define themselves. It's, a, it's in the core, in the, in, in, in the, um, at the core, a question of identity. Identity influences opinion. Maybe it doesn't fully determine it, but you have to understand that as a starting point. What has happened over the past decade um, is when you look at the trend leading up to the Arab uprisings, what we have seen is people's identification with the state has declined. People were less likely to say, I'm Egyptian first, or I'm Jordanian first, I'm Saudi first. And they're more likely to say, I'm Muslim first, or I'm Arab first, but particularly Muslim. And when we saw that, um, you know, you have to ask the question, what drives it? Why is that the case? And by the way, I again remind you that I'm here talking aggregately across the six countries, but I remind you that there are differences. The trends hold across the whole, the whole region. But when we talk about country to country, there's a difference. For example, the Saudis, and many of you have been to Saudi Arabia, are the least likely to identify with the state. They are the least likely people to say, I'm Saudi first. Roughly 20, sometimes less than 20%. And they're among the most likely to say, I'm Muslim first, then Arab, then, then Saudi. Uh, in Lebanon, a country that we think of as the most fragmented country and the most sectarian, where there's no single sect in Lebanon that constitutes a majority, you have Shia as probably the largest block, you have Sunnis and you have Christians, and even the Christians are divided among Maronites and Greek Catholics and Greek Orthodox, and, and you, you wouldn't believe how fragmented that country is. And yet in Lebanon, more people than anywhere in the Arab world say they're Lebanese first. More than religious or their sect or anything of that sort. And in Egypt, it's the most balanced. You have roughly equal uh, people say I'm Muslim and Egyptian and Arab. And it's very interesting kind of distribution. So there's variations. But across the board, there's been a decline in the affinity with the state and a rise in the affinity with identifying themselves as Muslim first. Remember, people are all these things, and we tell them, we're not taking that away from you. That is, you know, one can feel at once an Arab, an Egyptian, or a Muslim, or a Christian. Uh, but we put them on the spot, saying, which one is more important to you today, to see how the trend, uh, you know, evolves over time. And so it's very important to understand why that happened. I'm going to give you just a very quick snapshot as to why that happened. I think it has to be understood. A lot of people understood it as the rise of political Islam. That is not true. The evidence doesn't show that. The evidence doesn't show that. We have got, and I think there was a misunderstanding, and particularly some of the Islamist groups have misinterpreted what was happening. Part of it has to do with the fact that the state had failed. Uh, we know that we had failed states. People were angry with the governments. We knew that. And by the way, it's very hard 
to be angry with government and not be angry with the state. We, we can be angry with Obama or with Bush, and, uh, but we're not angry with the institution of the United States because they're going to be here temporarily. But if you were in Libya and the overwhelming majority of people have, were born, not only knew, were born while Gaddafi was, was in power, and and so when you when you don't like your ruler, you don't like the state. The, the ruler is the state, and so there's been a certainly a decline of identification with the state. The rise of Islamic identity, part of it certainly is a reflection of the strength of that identity in society, and it is. People tend to be religious, but by no means does it mean a huge increase in political Islam. In fact, we found that when you put them on the spot on questions related to what sort of government they want, we don't get a, an answer that confirms uh, 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 embrace of political Islam or even the imposition of an Islamic state in their countries. Um, I'll give you just uh, one interesting uh, question on the eve of the Egyptian election in May uh, 2012. Um, we had asked people in Egypt whether or not they think that the constitution should be based on Islamic Sharia law. And uh, what we found is that while you had two-thirds say yes, and by the way, even under Mubarak, the constitution was partly based on Sharia law. Um, uh, while they answer that, then we asked them if we had a follow-up question, which is, uh, do you want Sharia law to be applied literally, including to penal code, or do you want it to be adapted to modern times? You had over 80% say adapted to modern times. And what I'm suggesting to you is that part of that increase in Islamic identification over the past decade was obviously related to the decline of the state, but it was also tied to something else over the post-9-11 decade, which is there was a big assessment in the Arab world that we in the West, the U.S. in particular, but the West in general, is out to get Muslims. That there was out a, a you know, clash of civilization, out to weaken the Muslim world. And I believe that when you have identities under threat, you rally behind those aspects of the identities that are threatened. And part of that increase is saying, I'm, yes, I'm a Muslim, I'm defending who you are, and even with Sharia, there's, yes, I, abashedly Sharia is connected to Islam. So while I think there's a religious aspect to it, political aspect to it, I think it was misunderstood. Uh, two more points I want to make. Um, one, I'm not going to expand on, but I invite you to ask questions on. Contrary to conventional wisdom about the Arab uprisings uh, that started in 2010, 2011, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that much of the anger against the governments was related to foreign policy, even though the uprisings themselves were obviously about they wanting freedom from the governments and they want more food and more jobs and, and better conditions, undoubtedly. But to say that foreign policy wasn't a core issue that explains a decade of hostility toward the ruler is not to recognize reality. I invite any questions related to that. The final point I want to make. Uh, which is, um, so what does it all tell us about what we're facing now? I mean, we have uh, uprisings in many countries in the Arab world, uh, Egypt, uh, uh, Tunisia, uh, um, 
uh, Yemen still, uh, even though some of these are sort of being dealt with, uh, Bahrain, Syria, all these issues. So what does it tell us about what's happening in the Arab world and what Arabs want? And is this something that is going to stay with us or is this something that's going to be cyclical and we're going to go back? I mean, people say uh, in Egypt, uh, for example, uh, look, I mean, uh, the military court is coming back although I think they've never left. Um, and uh, they are, uh, you know, people are going back to pre-Mubarak, to, to Mubarak's era type, type uh, situation. I don't agree with that. And here's one point I want to make. I do not believe that what we're witnessing in the Arab world is something that is episodic, like a cycle that we witness every once in a while, that then going back to previous era. I, I, I see something as a, a transformation on a large scale that is going to stay with us for a long haul. And here's why. If you were to ask me, so what is it about the current Arab uprising that's different from past uprisings? Uh, I will tell you without hesitation, it is a public empowerment on a scale we had never witnessed before. And that public empowerment is enabled by an information revolution that is expanding and not going backward. And that information revolution is changing the nature of the relations between citizen and ruler, citizen and even broader society, citizen and the rest of the outside world. It is also transforming notions of identity, uh, and it is empowering in a way that reduces uh, fear in confrontation. And some of it are really addressed uh, pertaining to how even identities are transformed. Uh, for example, uh, when you have a television station like Al Jazeera, and I hear a head of Al Jazeera is coming to speak here, uh, when you have a television station like that uh, versus a local Jordanian station or local Moroccan station, and people are watching it, think for a second about what that station is trying to do. If you have a local station controlled by the ruler, the ruler is going to put out information that strengthens national identity and the loyalty to them. If you are a transnational television station like Al Jazeera, you see yourself want to get a market share in the entire Arab-speaking market. Everybody who can speak Arabic is 350 million people. And, and, and therefore, you want to put a product on the table that appeals to all of them, not to just the Jordanian or the Moroccan. And by default, you're reinforcing transnational identity away from the states. It's, that's a major transformation. The second is the empowerment part that I think many of us don't quite understand. Um, I think a lot of people who use the Internet, we've, we've, you know, we live in a democratic society, so a lot of people feel empowered anyway. Some don't. Some obviously feel marginalized. But the, when you are in a society where your voice had not been heard politically and you, your voice, uh, uh, your ability to organize has been limited because you can't have political organizations that enable you to organize, and you suddenly have this instrument of the Internet and the social media. Two things happen. One is you discover you can actually organize without the need for political party. That's how it all started in Tunisia and Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of people got to the streets without the typical need for organization. 
that the second thing you discover is that actually people are listening to you. Your voice is heard. When you tweet, and then your tweet is retweeted a thousand times, it's quite extraordinary. When you go and have a Facebook and then you find that you have several hundred friends who agree with you, it's quite extraordinary. So there's a, some, a sense of private, individual empowerment, even at the level of society, not just at the level of politics, an empowerment that is with us to stay. I even compare it in my own mind uh, to the Industrial Revolution in the West. We don't quite understand how much of an impact that had. It transformed society and politics through the rise of individualism by virtue of the fact that individuals earned wages that gave them uh, clout and empowerment through society and politics. Uh, the information revolution is something doing something parallel, empowering individuals. So we have empowered people. Now, that's the good news, meaning this is a progressive thing. It's not going backward. But let me give you the bad news of that. Why is it going to vary from country to country, and why is it going to remain unpredictable? One is people are not all united. I mean, we say the people as if it's the people, you know, it's the voice of people. They're all of one mind. We look at Egypt. I mean, you know, so who gets empowered? Well, the seculars and the, and, and, and the Islamists, the Christians and the Muslims, the poor and the rich. Uh, you know, every segment of society gets empowered, and they don't all see eye to eye. They don't all want the same thing. So we have, in essence, more contention. And the more heterogeneous a country is, the more conflict we're going to see. Witness what's happening in Syria, where you add to it the sectarianism. And we add to it multiple other elements where different empowered groups want more conflicting things. It's a recipe for conflict, not necessarily a recipe for peace. Particularly when they don't know how to organize and deal with it politically at a changing Middle East. Second, it's never the case if you look, look around and look and see, uh, even in our own country, we say public opinion matters. Of course it matters. Uh, but, you know, public opinion is only one element of politics, and most of the time it's not even the central element of politics. We have institutions, uh, we have multinational corporations, uh, we have political groups, well-organized political groups, uh, we have um, rich uh, and poor, they're not equally represented in any country for that matter. And so, um, so to say that people were empowered in places like Egypt, for example, uh, is, is not to say that the old sources of power are no longer important, like the military institution. The military institution in the Arab world has been central in every single country. In fact, you can't understand what happened in any one of the countries unless you understood the role of the military, uh, 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 the military institution. In, in Tunisia, really it was the military ultimately that persuaded Ben Ali that he has to abdicate, or to leave anyway. He didn't even, some people argue he didn't even know he was, at, he was leaving the, he was leaving power. Uh, they, they put him on the airplane and send him off. Uh, in Egypt, it was basically uh, the military persuading Mubarak he had to resign. Uh, in um, Bahrain, it was the military deciding to stick with the king and go against the opposition. In Syria, it was the military staying with Assad and shooting at the people. Those are military decisions that have had profound consequences for every single one of those cases. Those guys are not going to go away. And the same thing with the rich people and the 
and, 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 and the bureaucracies of government and everything else within these states. And I'll give you one anecdote, um, uh, and I'll end with that. And that anecdote has to do with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, I'm not going to go into the narrative as to how they got into power and why they lost power, but I'll give you one revealing example. Uh, just before, uh, 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 a couple of months before Mursi was overthrown, um, I was in Egypt, and I went to uh, uh, Mursi's office to meet with his top foreign policy advisor. He was really one of his closest confidants who's now in prison. Um, had a very, very good conversation, uh, and uh, my message was that, you know, you're not going to be able to make it um, unless uh, you broaden your representation, particularly with the Constitution. And he kept saying to me, what do you mean? You know, we had a Constitution, we had a vote, we had almost two-thirds of the people actually had, I think, 64% support for the Constitution that the Muslim Brotherhood put on the table. But I said... Uh, two things. I said, first of all, you only had one-third of the people actually vote on that day, and that tells you something. Should tell you something. But even more importantly, I said, you didn't get Cairo. Cairo didn't support it. Well, he said, Cairo is not Egypt. I said, Cairo is not Egypt, but it's the heart of Egypt. I said, you can get elected without Cairo, but you can't govern without Cairo. And by you can't govern without Cairo. I use Cairo metaphorically as well, yes, as a city, but as all the people who matter in the system, who have weight in the system, who have expertise and experiences and power and everything else. How are you going to rule without them? It's not enough to have votes from people. And that is going to be the challenge in every country that we're facing. But there is no doubt in my own mind that above all, when the Arab public chant that most of all they're seeking dignity in the world, dignity in their relations to society, dignity in their relations with the rulers, dignity in relations with the outside world. That is the force that in, at the core is driving the aspirations of people in the region. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, for those who are new here, we have a, a little bit of an unusual Q&A. We take three questions at a time, and uh, uh, we'll, we have a couple of uh, people with microphones. And first, we will, uh, our, our guests from the high school and, and middle school are here, and we all, will always take a question there. Uh, this is from uh, Brian Yee of L.D. Bell High School, who's in the 12th grade. Uh, how is the economic instability affecting the political side of the development of Arab, of Arab nations? Be the first question. Now, uh, show of hands, who would like to ask the next question? Right here. Mm -hmm. I think with the exception of Iran and Egypt, maybe there's some others, uh, most of the Middle Eastern countries were assembled by the French and British after World War One. They aren't really countries, they're amalgamation of ethnic groups, etc. On your last point, do you see ultimately that these countries break down into those groups? 
good question. Uh, next question over here. We read a lot about the difference between the Shias and the Sunnis. Mm -hmm. Is there a Shia way of looking at things versus a Sunni way? By that I mean, for example, in Bahrain, 90% uh, of the people are Shia. Uh, they're uh, 60, 90% or uh, but the majority, but the ruling class is Sunni. Mm -hmm. Is that important? Yeah, that's really an excellent question. All, all the three are, are really excellent questions. So let me take them in order. I'll start with the economic one. Uh, yes, for sure. I, I think there's no question that economic instability influences public perception. Uh, one example, again, let's stick with Egypt because that's one that uh, you hear more coverage about and it's one easier to relate to. Um, you know, obviously, uh, when, you know, whether or not um, Mursi uh, had uh, vast support, he was elected as a president, even though he was the Muslim Brotherhood candidate uh, in the elections. Um, had he succeeded in transforming the economic realities in Egypt uh, over that year, I think people would have given him a lot of a lot of uh, time to to do more. Uh, the fact that there was such a deterioration instead of improvement over that year, uh, I think, was one reason why a lot more people rallied behind him, uh, and and that was very obvious in, in terms of. Uh, the tourist industry is one example. Um, I, I had dinner with a, a head of a, one of the Egypt's biggest tourist uh, places uh, uh, just a couple of days ago in D.C. He was visiting in D.C. He said, um, in the height of their, uh, you know, good years, uh, they used to do twelve million dollars a year uh, a, a month. Twelve million dollars this month, the, the month of uh, uh, the previous month, the month of January. They would have done twelve million dollars. That um, uh, by by the time Morsi was overthrown, they were doing four hundred thousand a month. So it gives you a, a flavor of of what what that means. And think about the people who are unemployed, um, undoubtedly, and that's why I think a lot of people um, think that uh, the the military chief, uh, the strongman in Egypt right now, the defense minister, a general uh, field marshal now, field marshal Sisi. Uh, who is likely to run for president, probably will get elected as president, maybe making a huge mistake because right now he's got power as a military. People are judging him as a military uh, person. Uh, as president, they're going to judge him on what he can perform, and frankly, it's going to be a lot of people worried that it's going to be impossible to transform Egypt in the next year. So people are going to come back to the street to get rid of him if he doesn't improve it. Uh, we see the economics uh, playing out in the regional uh, setting because now Egypt desperately needs economic aid in the short term uh, that raises the influence of the rich countries in the region Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates who are able to bring in billions of dollars to give to Egypt because they don't want the Muslim Brotherhood to come back so they're giving Egypt billions of dollars in aid whether that can be sustained or not but certainly economics is a very central issue, I think. Now, on the question, uh, the second excellent question, uh, on on the uh, uh, kind of the, the inception of the political system in the Middle East uh, after World War One, after the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, when essentially the French and the British conspired to divide the region along lines that didn't uh, fit into the actual tribal or geographic distribution in the region, mostly to serve them. That, by the way, to this day, is a source of resentment in the region. Never, the, you know, identities never settled in the region 
partly because of that. For sure, we still find it, and the struggle has been to you know, to deal with that issue. Um, I happen to think that that is still a problem, and more so particularly as we move forward. But the problem is not so much that for now, and here's why I say that. I think whatever the inception of the system was, there is a country called Kuwait and people who are loyal to it, a country called Jordan and people who are loyal to it. And in, despite the fact that you you have varying degrees of prioritizing their state identity, uh, people, there's, the regimes have succeeded in creating something national. You see it in their music or loyalty to soccer teams or you know, uh, or, or, or either Arab relations or media outfits, uh, it's still there. I think the biggest problem to identity and to state boundaries is not that. It is the disintegration of central authority. So the problem in Iraq was not sectarianism. The problem in Iraq is that the central authority collapsed. And we have central authority collapse. How do you rebuild it from scratch? Uh, everybody, you know, retreats into their local identities or extended families or tribes or, or whatever it is that they, they have. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, everybody is, is trying to survive. And so, uh, it's very hard to do. And the same thing with Syria, certainly in some places, you take central authority away and it's very hard to build. And so then all these differences are highlighted. Uh, and so that's what I worry about. I think, my own view, I, uh, forgive me, I probably will, will uh, you know, some of you will disagree. I think that the 2003 Iraq War was one of the biggest mistakes made, not just from America's point of view, but from the point of view of the region. It had huge consequences because of dismantling central authority that had ripple effects and likely to have more ripple effects. And I think that's why you find right now in the American assessment, the CIA has been telling President Obama, um, after he had taken a more kind of aggressive uh, attempt to bring down the Assad government uh, and even going to the extent of, you know, uh, offering to, to, uh, to, to have a military strike against Assad, uh, the CIA uh, said to, to, to him basically, look, if you, um, Al-Qaeda and the other groups that are destabilizing, the only, the only, thing that can stop them is a strong central authority in Damascus. And whatever you do, don't dismantle the Syrian army like we did in, in Iraq. So I think that's really where the issue is. You shouldn't focus on the history so much in understanding the immediate priorities, I think, is, is, is the centralization of the state. Now, that relates to the Sunni-Shia divide, and it relates to it in the following way. Um, there's no question that there is sectarianism. Well, I mean, look at it in Iraq or Lebanon or, you know, in many places, Bahrain, obviously. Um, and that sectarianism, you know, is historic. You know, we have people, you know, differences that go back to theological differences, historical differences, uh, and, and layered over ethnic differences, because Iran is mostly Shia and the Arabs are mostly Sunni. So you have, you have certain differentiations. But here's what I'd like to say about that. It's rarely the case that sectarianism is the cause of conflict. It's rarely the case. I mean, these guys, um, I mean, do we really need sectarianism to explain divisions? Look at what's happening in Egypt. Put the Christians aside for a minute. They're a substantial minority, 10% of the population. But then look at the Sunnis. What's the, what's the problem in Egypt? The problem is not between Shia and Sunni. It's not between principally Christians and Muslims. It is between Sunnis and Sunnis. 
mostly secular Sunnis. Sunnis tied to certain uh, worldview and political Islamic Sunnis, and and that's a divide. And so when Syrian people say it's sectarian, sectarianism is only one thing there, but you have a lot more other divisions, and they come to the forefront when people are forced to look and they don't have anywhere else to go at the central level. Now, one final point regarding to the Sunni Shia. Um, I think when you, I, I, I suggested to you, I asked, you know, that, that, that what I do is trying to figure out the framework that Arabs use when they make a reference. You know, do they, uh, uh, what is it that they fear? What, what, is, what is it that they admire? Uh, and, and what that tells you about who they are. And, um, and I know if you look back at the talk about Shia, Sunni Shia divided happened right after the Iraq war when we had all this, you know, sectarianism in Iraq. And then it, you know, it, it was coupled with Hezbollah rising, which is Shia group in Lebanon, rising in power. Uh, and so we had all this talk about now the new division in the Middle East is Sunni Shia division tied to Iran. And some countries worry about it, including the Saudis and other Gulf states. So in our public opinion at that time, as I always do, I, I asked them a couple of questions related to it. One question tied to Iran specifically, as a, you know, a threat and a Sunni country, and one question tied about their leaders that they admire most. And I, I've, this is really uh, from the Iraq war on. And I asked them, uh, name the two countries that are most threatening to you personally, including Saudi Arabia. The number one was Israel, roughly 80%. Number two was the United States, roughly 7%. And Iran was about maybe 20%, so the third biggest threat. So while it was a threat, it wasn't the, the framework of reference for them. Coupled to that, when you ask them, uh, whom among world leaders do you admire most? Open question. I don't give them answers. So I'm trying to figure out. People are saying, oh, they, were, they want political Islam. Maybe they'll say bin Laden. Or maybe at least they'll say Qaradawi, who's the influential cleric on Al Jazeera TV, a Sunni advocate. Or maybe they'll say somebody else. Um, well, no single Sunni ruler was number one or number two in my list for the entire time that I pulled in any of the Sunni majority countries. Not a single one of them. And um, no Sunni Arab ruler. Uh, the, the Prime Minister of Turkey came up a little bit later on. And in 2006 and 2007, 2008, that period, uh, in Egypt and Morocco and Jordan, mostly Sunni countries, when I asked them, whom among world leaders do you admire most? Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah, who is obviously a Shia cleric, was number one, as most admired. Uh, Trump, every single Sunni ruler. And they did it not because he was Shia, of course, or he was religious. They did it because he thought he stood up to Israel in the 2006 war, and they were rooting for it. So the Arab-Israeli prism and the American prism, Trump the sectarian prison for much of the Arab world, except for places where they're in the middle of the conflict with each other, where the, part, where the question is one of survival, or they see it as one of survival, particularly now in Syria, in Iraq, and, and in Lebanon. But outside in the Sunni Arab world, that's not the prison where they make the, the, the evaluation.
next set of uh, our next set of uh, three questions. But uh, first, I uh, mentioned a little housekeeping. This session will go on until 1.30. We adjourn at 1.30. Following that time, uh, you are in, our speaker will stay here at the podium. You're invited to come up here to ask him more questions and also for the book signing. Now, let's do number okay, um, question right here. This is kind of a generalization here, but uh, <clears throat> you have uh, 27 countries of Europe uh, are secular. Uh, the old Europe of the 14th, 13th, 12th centuries, mostly religious, or religion ruled those countries. So today we are in a world where the Middle East is still spending a lot of time talking about religion and religious governments. What do you see as the future of really of the Middle East to become a more secular type of world? Yeah. Which is what is the future of progress is linked to. Yeah. Instead of having religious states, secular states, one versus the other. Um, right here. Could you elaborate a bit more on the methodology you use? Sure. Are you calling people on cell phones or having written surveys? Sure. Okay. Uh, right over here. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your information, kind of the information technology revolution and how you see that as impacting. It seems to me that's a bell that, as you say, you're, you're not going backwards. You can't, you can't unring that bell. And so that gave people an opportunity to be heard, but it also gave them an opportunity to receive information about what's going on in the rest of the world. And it would seem, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that part of that is also seeing what goes on in more Western civilizations and cultures where there's more freedom, et cetera, et cetera, is that access to information creating a bigger divide given your first observation that people are identifying themselves religiously, or is it creating more of a desire of, wow, we'd like to emulate or have some of the things that we see are going on in the West? Yeah. Okay, um, uh, let me start with the first one. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, let me start with the methodology first, because that that uh, uh, is uh, you know uh, a straightforward question. Um, in the six Arab countries, um, uh, what we've done is um, I did this with Zagbi International polling uh, with local contractors, and so we had a sample roughly of four thousand every uh, every year when we did this. So it was a pretty significant sample. Uh, in urban areas, but chosen to be national representative demographically. So uh, we had distribution, ethnic distribution, age distribution, income distribution, uh, certainly gender distribution uh, throughout the whole. And they were all face-to-face -face, uh, because we, we didn't think that phone would uh, capture for a variety of reasons. So they were all phone face-to-face uh, -face interviews. Um, in Israel, the ones that we've done among the Jewish population of Israel, they were by phone, in part because the Israelis have a, a developed, well-developed phone sampling. We used actually Israel's, um, at the time, leading um, 
uh, post or dahaf uh, to do the polling. And among Arab citizens of Israel who live mostly in villages, we actually were forced to do face-to-face because we didn't think phone was reliable enough, so we spent more money. Arabs constitute 20% of the population of Israel, uh, and yet we spent like uh, five times the amount on the, on the actual poll among Arabs. And it was the reverse because it was, we had to do it face-to-face. Um, I'm sorry, remind me of the, your question just very quickly. Secular versus... Oh, the secular, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and and that, that's really a huge question because I think what is misunderstood here is that the, the battle, I think, in the Arab world that's bigger than sectarian battle and is likely to be a battle if, if, if uh, you know, we all pray we have uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace. You're going to have a secular religious battle. And you're going to have it in Israel too, by the way, which is which is a central central theme that is, um, and that battle is not about being religious. It's about imposing religion on the state because uh, Arabs tend to be very religious, like Americans, by the way. Americans, for example, tend to say they're more religious than, let's say, Europeans. So Americans tend to be, but they're very go- much guard this separation between state and church, and. Um, in the Arab world, if you ask the Egyptians, are you religious, you get over 90%, almost 100% say yes, in one form or another. Uh, and um, so there, people are religious. It's not about whether they're religious or not. It's about whether they want religion to be imposed on them as the law of the land. And I think that's what they don't want. And so there is that battle. And that battle is a big one. I think that we see it in Egypt. We see it in Syria. We're going to see it elsewhere. Uh, the ruling elites tend to be, uh, you know, don't want to be tied to political Islam. Um, the public is now battling, and um, part of it, it's hard. It was hard to know. My own sense is um, that, as to tie back to the information revolution uh, and and sort of uh, expectations, because you you have. Uh, when you are opening up to the rest of the world, yes, it's empowering, but also your expectations are rising. And, and certainly, you know, you want more freedom. You see people having, why can't I have this? Why can't I do this? Why do they have this and I don't have it? Of course. I mean, we, we see it. They talk about it all the time. Why can't we, you know, do this? So, yes, it's, it's having an impact. Now, whether it's going to have that impact related to the secular religious divide or to how they identify themselves, that remains to be studied, in part because we know what happens with opening. Uh, that, yes, it opens up the world, but some people only go to the things they're looking for, and they get busy about it, and you ignore everything else. So it, it, you look for people like you, and you identify them across the board, and sometimes it makes you actually less globalized, not more globalized. Nonetheless, the early signs and I've started doing work on it, and now it's going to be a bigger project on the Internet use. Um, the early sign is that the younger people in the Arab world who have access to the Internet, and that's an expand, I mean, you know, the, the, the use of the Internet in the Arab world expanding 30% a year. Think about this, 30% a year. So we're talking about how long will it be before they all have it or mostly have it. It's huge expansion of the Internet. Of those who have it, they tend to say, I'm first and foremost a citizen of the world more than any other category. Not a majority of them, but a substantial minority. In, in, uh, 
um, you know, it, when I first started doing, let's say, 10 years ago, ask them, uh, uh, you know, if they were citizens, are you first Arab citizen of the world, Muslim, Egyptian, I had a negligible percentage who said citizen of the world, just less than 1%. In some of the new data, among those people who have internet and are young, uh, you have almost 10% say I'm citizen. Uh, I'm citizen of the world first. That's huge expansion. It tells you where some the links are creating not only expectations, but even identifications and empathy beyond the boundaries. That actually is something that I think is going to be um, central in watching what happens in the next decade. Thank you very much, sir. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.